right, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. Uh, Acts chapter 21, uh, where we're at in our study. Before we get to Acts chapter 21, I want to lay some groundwork uh, and give you a little bit of history. Don't pass out on me. I know when I start to get historical, we all get the case of the slumbers. And so stay with me here. Uh, I want to introduce you to a little bit of history uh, of Jerusalem. And this will be beneficial for you to understand the text. It'll bring the text a little bit more to life for you. Uh, in Second Temple Jerusalem. And what I mean by second temple Jerusalem is that there was a first temple. And the first temple was actually constructed under a king by the name of Solomon. Uh, we meet Solomon in the book of First Kings. And he constructed in and through the people and through David, his father, through provision, the great temple. And it stood for many centuries until it was razed to the ground by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, through the judgment of God, raised Jerusalem and the temple down to bedrock. And for 70 years, the people of Judah and Israel had been carried into captivity where they were held captive until Persia allowed a group of, of Jews to return back to the land to rebuild the temple. And as what we read of in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, it was, it was a modest temple comparatively speaking to Solomon's temple, modest in supply and, and modest in its presentation, yet it was still a place of sacrifice and worship. And there it stood for about 500 years uh, until a guy by the name of Herod, uh, we also know him as Herod the Great, uh, we encounter him a couple of times in the scripture, invested large resources, sums of money, into the temple itself and construction and laborers and built what was then known as Herod's temple. He was trying to earn the favor of the Jews. Here's a picture uh, of today, a, a modern-day representation. Sorry about the graininess. This is actually a, a one-one-hundredth model uh, that a guy in the U.K. has built. He spent 30 years of his life building this model from old archaeological digs and from some old writings. And so he kind of pieced this together. And what I like about this picture is it gives us an, a way of orienting our minds about what's happening. Herod's temple, I feel weird saying it was Herod's temple. It wasn't. It was Israel's temple. But nonetheless, it was about 37 acres in its whole, in its whole size. So that's a huge piece of, of land. Out here, uh, and you notice it goes all the way around, this was what was called the general court or the court of the Gentiles. That's where y'all, we all would hang out, okay? We, we would be allowed to hang out in the court of the Gentiles or the general court. This is where a lot of business was taking place. In fact, as you read in John chapter 2 in the end of the Gospels, where Jesus overturns temples. Y'all remember that story? He walks in and he says, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. This is where the thievery was going on. There was the exchanging of temple sacrifices and all kinds of shenanigans going on out here. Right here was the gate into the court of Israel. And this is where the court of the women and the court of the men were. This was people of Israel. And then this is the holy place and then the most holy place. This is where the offerings and the sacrifices, the brazen altars and all that, and the animal sacrifices through these doors would be offered. And then in here would be the most holy place. And I show you this. Uh, we have a little piece, a fragment of the original temple outside of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But here is one remaining stone that our, uh, archaeologists have found. Uh, this is a portion of a great stone. In fact, there were many of these stones that hung around the temple itself. And this is what it read. If you translate uh, the Greek or the Latin into present-day English, this is what this stone would read. No thorner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught, that is, whoever is caught entering into the court of Israel, who is not of Israel, on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. Pretty inviting, right? Like, can you imagine that hanging out in front of a church? 
Anyone who's not of this church, entering into this church, may be put to death uh, upon your own head. Anyway, so that's what it read. Uh, And within the Second Temple Jerusalem, there were four leading uh, groups that basically were the religious leaders. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we've all heard plenty about the Pharisees. They were ardent students of the law. You've got the Sadducees, and people always go, they're so sad, you see. But they were the ones that were the kind of the religious leaders upon the Sanhedrin. But there were two other groups that we don't really hear a lot about. First were the Essenes, uh, and they were a bunch of crazies, like, uh, like end timers. You ever meet people who are end timers? You know what I'm talking about? Apocalyptic folks? Like they're like selling off all they own, and they go out to the mountains, and they, well, that's basically what the Essenes did, and they were waiting for Messiah to basically wreck shop on Rome and earth and then usher in his kingdom and they were going to march in from the hills. We're actually kind of grateful to the crazies because they preserved a large chunk of biblical material. In fact, we call it the Dead Sea Scrolls. We are thankful to the Essenes uh, for their asceticism because we got to collect a lot of biblical data. Anyway, the fourth group were called the Zealots. And uh, they, they were exactly what they sound like. They were Zealots. Uh, they were religious Zealots. They were national Zealots. They were anti-Rome Uh, In fact, they were pro the people of Israel to such an extent that they were often instigating rebellions in the city. Uh, They were called the zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. Um, And that term, zealot, uh, was first coined with this group, but it later became... Uh, came to be used to describe those who were fanatical and uncompromising in their political and religious views. Are, are Are there any zealots today? Is that... Is that a common problem? You've been on Facebook lately? I mean, religious, political, zealotry. Okay, so that's kind of what it was like. They were the zealots. They stood firm in their beliefs, so we can relate to that. Well, that becomes the focus of our discussion in Acts 21. All of that to say, to set the table for Acts chapter 21. We are on a journey with Paul. And Paul has made his way through his third missionary journey. He's made his way up through present-day Turkey on into present-day Greece and the churches that he has planted. And he is now returning to Jerusalem. God has told him it is time for him to go to Jerusalem. But God has also told him that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to face persecution. He is most assured to be imprisoned and possibly even put to death, handed over to the Gentiles. In fact, every stop along the way, right before he got to Jerusalem, everyone was telling him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has been testifying, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned and possibly put to death. And Paul said, what value is my life? I will finish my course. I will fight the good fight. I'll finish the race. He was assured of a great and wonderful reward The gospel was his priority. So to Jerusalem he went. Verse 17. It says, When we had come to Jerusalem, we, that is Luke and the other missionaries and evangelists, they were with Paul. They had been on his journey, and now they come to Jerusalem. The brothers received us gladly. That is, the church at Jerusalem received us warmly. That is a great report that the the church at Jerusalem had, had agreed with and had supported the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles. It says, verse 18, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. This is interesting. James, the brother of Jesus here, is seen as the head of the church at Jerusalem. No longer is it Peter. Now, we, many commentators will ask, where did all the apostles go? And most likely, they have left and gone on to minister in the churches in the surrounding regions and even beyond. But it shows James as a leader among the church. In fact, James is also the author of the epistle that bears his name. And He is the head of the church, and the elders are with him. And Paul presents a great gift. 
Acts doesn't tell us this. But Paul and friends have brought a great financial offering to the church at Jerusalem. They see it as their responsibility to care for those who have provided for them spiritually. Paul actually writes about it in Romans chapter 15. No need to turn there, but I want to show you what Paul is bringing with him as he comes into the church at Jerusalem. Paul writes this in in Romans. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Paul writes this letter from the city of Corinth in his third missionary journey as he's heading to Jerusalem. Okay, so this kind of predates his arrival, but this is what he says. For Macedonia and Achaia, that is the Gentile churches, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. The church, the believing church, has always had a mark of generosity. And specifically a generosity that is stirred by those who have laid the spiritual foundation for their life. And this is what they say, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that is the blessings of the believing Jews, they also ought to be of service to them a material blessing. You, you bless materially those who bless you spiritually. And so Paul brings this great gift to the church at Jerusalem. Verse 19 of Acts 21. It says, after greeting them and after providing this great financial gift, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so Paul's telling them of all of the great exploits of Galatia and how they were stoned at Lystra, that is with rocks, and how they made their way through Turkey and stood at Troas and God called them over to Greece and the gospel was spread all the way to Athens and Corinth and beyond and it's soon to reach Rome and Spain and he's telling all these great stories and and what's interesting to me, I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you're relaying like really good news to somebody and you're super stoked about it and you're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening, but they've got bad news to tell you. And you notice you're like, you're like waiting for them to get excited, but they don't. And it says in the text that they glorified God. They were excited about it momentarily, but they had another issue that they needed to talk to Paul and friends about. One that was very concerning to them. They'd been hearing reports about Paul. And these reports were not only concerning to the religious leaders of the church in Jerusalem, it was concerning news among the uh, Jewish Christian population of, of Jerusalem. Listen to this. I can imagine there was probably that awkward pause where they were like, oh, that's so great. And then they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They're all zealous for the law. Which then should have been, which is why we're discipling them and showing them that in Christ that there is no longer any obligation to the law. But for some reason, the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church were giving way to, to pressure. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And this leaves me kind of scratching my head because they're giving way to religious zealotry and pressure to submit again to a yoke that they've been set free from. See, Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled circumcision. He fulfilled the sacrifices. The temple itself was constructed in worship of Jesus, even though the people had rejected their Messiah. And now the church at Jerusalem is telling Paul, hey, we're getting reports that you're no longer a good little Jew. And you're going to need to prove yourself. I don't know if you've ever been put to the test or someone has challenged you to prove yourself or prove your worth or to be a people pleaser, but that's essentially what they're telling Paul to be. 
Paul wrote about uh, situations like this and specifically about the freedom we have in Christ. I am not sure why James and the elders are going to take the stance that that they do. I quote here from Galatians 5. This is so important to us because we may look at this and go, well, these are religious customs for the Jews. This doesn't apply to us as Gentiles. I'm going to show you in just a moment. It does apply to us. Paul writes this in Galatians. He says, for freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand, in, stand therefore in what? Stand in what? Freedom. You have been set free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he is going to equate the Mosaic law to a form of bondage. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that is, if you pursue religious practice in a way to make yourself righteous before God, what will happen to you is Christ will be no advantage. If you try to earn righteousness by keeping tenets of the law like circumcision, it will gain you nothing. Testify, he says again, to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait of righteousness. And so he goes on to say, in Christ, either circumcision or uncircumcision, it profits you nothing. You know what does? Faith working through love. And so he's standing there before the religious leaders, and they're saying, you need to submit again to this yoke. And it's, it's been fascinating to me over the years. I've gotten to know folks that have come out of different historical backgrounds. Uh, and I've met family members who have come out of devoutly Catholic homes. I'm not going to pick on Catholicism, but I want you to hear this. There are some folks that grew up attending Mass or being confirmed, adhering to sacraments or customs and traditions of Catholicism. And many have been taught that by doing these certain sacraments or these certain religious customs that you were made right through them before God. Uh, whether that is uh, through the sacrament of marriage or through the sacrament of communion or uh, through the different sacraments that are presented. I'm not being derogatory, by the way. Uh, so many of these customs and practices are hundreds of years old, and they're in predominantly Catholic areas. I don't know if you've ever grown up or been around a predominantly Catholic area. It's woven into the fabric of the community, very much so. But then that person distru- discovers grace, like true grace. That no religious practice makes us right. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that person is like totally set free. But there's this, there's this historical obligation to these customs. But there's this present day freedom. There's this pressure to conform. And there is freedom. And so Paul stands between these two schools that are still common today. This religious practice of approaching God through works or the spiritual walk of approaching God through grace by faith. And so the, the church at Jerusalem have an idea, and their idea is, is wrought with issues. In fact, any time we try to appease uh, the legalistic masses, you're always going to fall short. But no, nonetheless, verse 23, this is their plan. You're going to have to prove that you're, you're a good Jew, is essentially how to boil us down. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men here who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses. I mean, this is just shocking to me. So that you, uh, they may shave their heads, thus they will know there's nothing in what have been told uh, about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. What do you do if you're in a situation like that? 
when you know you're being told to do something, you're like, this just isn't even right. Paul is an apostle. He's on equal footing with James. He's brought a gift. He's brought a great testimony. And now James is going, you got to prove yourself, Paul. What do you do in that type of situation? It's very quiet. What do you do? Do you fight against it? Stand up for what you believe in. That's a very American idea. We have this right to fight. We have this right to, to speak our minds and, and to proclaim our perspective. And, and I believe in that right. I'm very appreciative that we have that freedom. But I find it interesting how Paul responds. Knowing that the practices are fruitless when it comes to righteousness, Paul is about to concede to their plan. Uh, in a moment, the apostle James mentions the decision in Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 25 of Acts 21. It says, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, so they're going to give a nod to the Gentiles, and they're going to almost create a dichotomy where there's, there's a law for the Gentiles and there's a law for the Jews, that is, believers. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And so essentially they're like, there is a law for Gentile believers and there is a law for Jewish believers. Class, is that accurate? Are there two laws? Is there a law for Gentile believers and a law for Jewish believers? Is there a, a law for Catholic believers and Protestant believers? There is one law. There is one Christ. There is one body. And that one law is faith working through love. Paul is going to follow through with their plan which is essentially parading himself through the temple, being ceremonially cleansed and providing for the ritual cleansing of these four Nazarites. And I, I've, I'm scratching my head the whole week. I'm like, why would Paul do this? And then I remembered his words out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes this. Wow, what a humble heart. I'm like, give me this kind of heart. He says, for though I am free from all, he's proclaiming his freedom, I have made myself a what to all? servant, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, speaking of the Gentiles, not that I'm outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And in the context, the weak are typically the religious he goes on to say, the reason he does all of this, the reason why he became weak, I've become all things to all people, that all, by all means, I might save some. I do it what? All for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in blessings. And so Paul concedes. He goes into the temple. He takes the four men who are under a vow. He presents them into the temple. Look at verse 26 of Acts 21. It says, then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself do you know why he had to purify himself, by the way? Because he'd been around Gentiles. He had to sterilize himself. Get the Gentile germs off. He purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and offering presented for each one of them. Is Paul doing the right thing? I'll let you wrestle that one out. I will tell you this, though. 
There are times, and if you struggle with being a people pleaser, please listen up. There are times in this life where you will go to great lengths to please somebody. You will literally have the expression as bend over backwards. I've never actually seen somebody do that, but it's a fascinating expression. It's, it means, obviously, you go to, you'll do anything to please somebody. But there are times, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, there are some times where people just have it out for you. Paul is submitting to what has been asked of him. He is obeying the law, even though he is free from it, in hopes of winning some. And then a group of Jews from Asia show up. And that's where the trouble breaks out. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, that is, Paul hung out for the best part of a week. He must have been the talk of the temple. Here's this guy who was once a, a persecutor of the way, now a preacher of Jesus. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the guy! Oh my gosh, he's in the temple! How serendipitous! This is the dude! This is the evil one! They're grabbing Paul and they're punching him and they're yelling out. He is the one preaching against the temple, against our customs, our law, and this place. What was Paul doing at the moment he was seized? He was following the law. He was submitting. Nonetheless, they grab him. And then they make an accusation that is not only inappropriate but inflammatory. Paul brought Gentiles into the temple. Look at the next, the rest of the verse. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Remember back what I showed you, the temple? Here, let's take a look one more time. Here is the court of the what? Court of the what? The Gentiles. What was posted at these doors? Actually, all of the doors in stone. I'll reorient your mind. No foreigner may enter within this balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. Greek and in Latin. And in fact, Rome had given a certain level of autonomy to Israel, even if a Roman citizen walked into the temple of Israel or inside of the court of Israel, they too could be put to death. And so they accused Paul of bringing Greeks into the temple. And this is why, verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesians, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul is hanging out with Gentiles in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He did not bring Greeks into the inner area of the temple. Nonetheless, the city was stirred up and the people ran together. This so reminds me of Jesus. You ever think of the, you ever hear the songs that talk about walking in Jesus' footsteps or being like Jesus? In this moment in Paul's life, he's being like Jesus. He's literally walking the same streets that Jesus walked. He is in the temple where Jesus had been accused and presented. He is going to be tried without a jury. He's going to be found guilty, and he's going to be sentenced to death, just like his Savior. It says, Then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and at once the what were shut. I think that is an ominous statement. Once those temple gates were shut, the gospel was never let into those gates again. It was little less than a decade later that Rome completely destroyed the temple. That beautiful temple, that wonderful uh, then-known wonder of the world, a temple that shone brilliantly in the sun because of the limestone that was used in construction, all that had been invested, raised to the ground. They had rejected their God, and God had finally said enough. And so Paul is dragged outside the city where they're going to put him to death. In fact, the, the rebel rouse or the, the 
the uprising quickly caught the attention of the Roman soldiers in the, in the community. Verse 32, it says they were seeking to kill him, verse 31, and word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and so immediately they go down to the street. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, that's nice of them. So about 600 soldiers show up. And in the middle swing, they look up and they see all these soldiers and they're like, hey, what's going on? They had no authority to be beating Paul. And so immediately there's confusion as to, to what's the problem. So the, the tribune immediately comes and arrests Paul, verse 33, bound him with two chains. This is fulfilling the prophecy of Agabus. Remember Agabus said, whoever owns this belt will be bound. Paul is now bound. He is bound by his own people and handed over to the Gentiles uh, ordered him to be bound with chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out away with him. Imagine being rejected by your own people like that. He literally has to be carried because of the violence of the crowd wanting to tear him apart. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And then the tribune says something very interesting. He says to him, do you know Greek? And Paul's like, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Tarsus of Cilicia. I've been speaking Greek. I'm a Roman. Who do you think I am? And then the, the tribune says this, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? I read that this week, and I was like, oh, I've never even heard of this. So I went digging, and I found out, F.F. Bruce writes this. This is so fascinating. Some three years prior to Paul being arrested here at this moment, an Egyptian adventurer appeared in Jerusalem claiming to be a prophet. He led a large band of followers out to the Mount of Olives. There he told them to wait until at his word of command, the walls of the city would fall flat then they would march in, overthrow the Roman garrison, and take possession of the place. How well do you think that worked out? <laughs> Turns out, the guy shouted, the walls didn't fall, and Rome just like whipped their butts, and the Egyptian guy ran out into the wilderness. And so the tribune's under the, the assumption that this is who Paul is. And Paul says, no, let me introduce myself. He turns to the tribune, and he says this, verse 39. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you. Permit me to speak to the people. Even in all of this, his heart is still to share the message of Christ with the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, he motioned with his hands to the people. Hundreds, if not thousands of people in front of him. And he's motioning with his hands for them to quiet down. And it says there was a great hush. And then he addressed them in Hebrew. That is, he began to speak in Aramaic, and there was an even greater hush. And Paul stood there and as he got their attention, he spoke these words that we will look at next week. Aww. Some applications for you. The problem was zealots. And I'm not talking, I'm not going to be talking about people who are, uh, convict, have conviction or passion whether it's a group of Jewish nationalists or a group of Jewish believers who are zealous for the law, zealotry in its raw form always becomes a problem. And this is what I'm talking about. When people put certain customs or practices or political views above Christ, 
Not once does James and the elders in their presentation of the plan say anything of Jesus. They're talking about nothing but the law and the customs. Those laws and those customs had become elevated above Christ in their hearts and their minds. You need to hear this. A person is not saved. And I, what I mean by saved, I mean in a right relationship with God through, through good works or ritual or sacrifice or custom, no matter how ancient they are. You are not saved through baptism. So if you were baptized, that does not save you. You are not saved through communion. You were not saved through uh, attending church or certain religious calendar days or sacred observances. You're not saved because you attend church. In fact, the only way to have abundant life, true eternal life, is by faith. To believe in Christ, to trust in him. And that is as ancient as Abraham, by the way. Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. We are made righteous through grace by faith. And so when we, when we think of those, those concepts, I need to say this. We need to be careful. We need to be careful with our politics. We need to be careful with some of our religious customs and what we're trying to impress on other people. Did you know Jesus is not a Republican? Nor is he a Democrat. Nor is he a Libertarian. He's the King of Kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. And when we elevate certain political perspectives or certain religious perspectives above Christ, we're actually getting in the way of the gospel. I'm not saying this to step on anybody's toes, but some of us need to stop it. Using this wonderful platform that we have been gifted with, the opportunity to reach and influence people, and we're leveraging it for political means as opposed to leveraging it for gospel purposes. Use every single aspect of your influence to reach people with the gospel. Paul leveraged everything, and as we will see next week, even his Roman citizenship to preach the gospel. That leads to the second point, being all things to all people. No matter how awkward this experience is between Paul and the church at Jerusalem, I see incredible humility in Paul. His willingness to submit to a ridiculous plan. He shouldn't have to parade himself through the temple the pageantry to prove that he was a good Jew. He was equal standing with James. But he understood that through puffing his chest and proclaiming his rights, he'd potentially lose the opportunity to reach some with the gospel. He was willing to become all things to all people. He was willing to see the value in all people and recognizing that he himself had been anti-people of the way and he was the one that persecuted the church he could see a lot of similarities and commonality between those and those he was trying to reach. I want to encourage us that to win people to Christ, at times we need to set aside personal preferences and even personal convictions to build relationships that can lead to somebody's salvation. Did y'all hear that? I'm going to say it again. At times we need to set aside personal preferences and even convictions to build relationships that can lead to people's salvation. The gospel is primary in all relationships. And then I'll end here. All are welcome. As you walked in this morning, I'm, I'm sure none of you saw that stone sign, right? There are no signs out front that say who can and who cannot come into this place. In fact, all are welcome. I, I read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All are welcome here in this place. You will never see a stone monument out front that says who can and cannot come in these doors. All are welcome. And that stone monument will never be out there and it'll never be on our faces, correct? All are welcome, amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Um, that's an understatement. <laughs> Gosh. I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, that I do not have to perform for you. Because if performing for you was the mandate, I would fail you. Uh, I am a rebel. I'm a blasphemer. I am a turner awayer. I am not a pursuer of you. Not in my own posture. Jesus, you saved my life not because it was something more significant than any other life, but because of your grace. Uh, please listen. If you're here today and you believe that your relationship with God is is founded on good works or that you somehow have to earn something with God or maybe you have failed him so much that there's no way he could ever forgive you. You misunderstand grace. There is nothing you can do to earn a right standing with God. If you're trying to earn it with God, you are never going to pay enough. You're always going to fall short. That is why the Father sent his Son. Jesus came, took on our flesh to pay our debt, and he paid it in full. He overpaid and the Bible declares that Jesus died for our sins and he was buried and he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And the Bible proclaims all who believe in him, all who trust in him will be saved. Today is the day of salvation, is the gift of God. And if you have not received Jesus as your savior, please friend, receive him. In the quietness of your heart, tell him I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, the Bible proclaims you've just passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are a son or a daughter of God, and nothing can pry you from his grip of grace and love. Welcome to the family. Set us free from the bondage of law that we could walk in freedom in pursuit our high calling of proclaiming your name to the nations. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, let's do